When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone else's lives go on. And when I tell my friends how I'm feeling, they're incredibly supportive. But I think... I probably speak for a lot of grieving people when I say I wish sometimes friends would just say, how are you doing today? I know it's nearly been two years, but how are you doing? On this week's episode, we are joined by Rose Yavna Taylor. And Rose, so sadly, lost her dad when she was just 24 years old. Um, And she has written an incredible book called 365 Days Past the Traffic Lights. And it looks at that first year of grief after she lost her dad. Um, It was really wonderful to talk to Rose because she speaks so beautifully and openly about what it's like to lose a parent at such a young age and the process of kind of dealing with friends and people around you who have never experienced anything like that before. It was, yeah, an honor to speak with her. How do you cope with the death of a parent at just 24 years old? This week's guest, Rose Yavna Taylor, asked herself that exact question in January 2018 upon losing her father, Cyrus Yavna, to cancer. Her book, 365 Days Past the Traffic Lights, explores the first year of her life without her father by her side and how we can show grieving young adults that they are not alone. Thank you so much for joining us, Rose. This is something that I think is really, really important to talk about. First of all, I just want to say how sorry I am that you lost your dad. Um, and that's the most important thing. And that's why we do this podcast is to bring conversations about grief, you know, out of the darkness and have people talk about them more openly. Um, can you tell us, you know, the, the most important thing usually is to just find out about who he was. So can you tell us a little bit about your dad and, and who he was? Sure. Yeah. So he was definitely, um, I'd say a larger than life personality. So my dad was American. He had a very loud American kind of half New York, half Californian accent, and he lived there. Um, So we split our time half in Los Angeles, half in the Cotswolds where I went to school. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for me, going out to Los Angeles meant visiting dad and having fun. And he'd always, you know, because he wasn't there every day, so he'd always plan whenever we went to visit. um, Whatever was going on at that time that we were there, we would go to absolutely everything. He was because I've got a twin so he just absolutely loved like showing us around and taking us into work and you know we were kind of the novel in Los Angeles anyway at the time like the novel kind of English twins who were five years old kind of walking around the office but he was just super proud of everything we did like he was probably the kind of classic parent that goes on about their children too much (laughs) to other people (laughs) and everyone else is like okay we don't care um (laughs) so no he was very like larger than life just very very kind person um very kind of family orientated and as he was a film producer and something that kind of came up after dad died was just an absolute flood of messages on social media and also a lot of people who came to the funeral who you know like I'd never met I didn't know who they were but they'd worked with dad and they always said that he was one who stuck up for you know the crews and the people who didn't have a voice he was just very kind and generous and tried to really bump people up and let their voices shine. So I feel a real kind of privilege being his daughter and him having that legacy. Yeah, I mean, he sounds 
amazing um, and like one of a kind. <laughs> How does it feel to talk about him now? Is it still a hard thing to do? Do you feel a sense of pride when you when you speak about him? I do. I definitely feel a sense of pride. Um, I found that when I talk about dad um, as, you know, dad as a person and then dad as being like dead, yeah. um, I feel like if I'm talking about it on my terms or if I know that it's something that I need to talk about, then I feel really kind of good or like, mm. I guess not empowered, but I feel happy to talk about him because I want to share that. I want to tell everyone, you know, like how great he was and the effects of his death has had on me. But I find that when people might suddenly spring it on me and I'm not prepared, that's when I just completely crumble because mm. the pain is still, you know, so terrible and you don't, you know, it's something that I try and talk about in my book. You don't just get over it, even though a lot of people say, um, you know, one of the things I absolutely hate is when people ask me, are you okay now? <laughs> and it's like, well, that hasn't come back oh, to no. life. So <laughs> not uh, really. I'm because grieving people just know that it's just a new world that you live in. So it's not exactly. about being okay or not being okay. It's just about accepting your new circumstances for what they are. And although you function and you find a exactly. way to cope, you have to do a lot of work to actually get to that place. It's not as if, you know, it just happens overnight where you're suddenly, you know, completely fine. Um, because you were, you you know, this is a tough question, and I don't know if you felt this, but because you probably didn't have a lot of friends who had also lost parents, did you feel very isolated at when you lost your father? Yeah, so that was my absolute biggest issue. So um, I have two friends that have lost a parent, mm. Um and so I only really had them to talk to, but both of them, that was quite fresh as well. So, you know, I was worried that I didn't want to upset them. So I almost shied away from talking too much about it to them. Um, but that's a massive reason why I wrote the book, because I just thought none of my friends understand that, mm. you know, potentially, you know, some were up absolutely amazing and supportive my best friend and my boyfriend were absolutely amazing but then you know you have other friends I know they mean well but sometimes they're just not there for you in the way that you need and that makes you really angry and you're like why can't you understand how I'm feeling kind of yeah. thing so I thought you know like I really needed at the time a book that was written by a young person so I felt like I had that kind of community through a book and I just didn't find it and so I that's another reason why I thought to write it, I basically wrote what I wish I had been given the day that dad died because I find, you know, talking to friends about it, um, the ones that I choose to talk to, they do definitely listen. But sometimes I want them to almost ask me questions so that I feel like I can keep opening up because, yeah. you know, otherwise you feel like, oh, am I kind of giving them too much information? Is this too much for them to, to yeah. deal with? But, um, you know, I want I want people to say to me, what are you thinking about your dad today? Or yeah. what, what would you have done with your dad this time last year? And things like that. But I think especially not just friends, but I think family as well, people and colleagues and just everyone, I think people do tend to just shy away from even mentioning them. And I hate that because it's like, don't worry to think that it's not like I've forgotten. I'm very aware that, yeah. that you know, dad's not here. I think about that all the time. I think about him all the time. And I would love for someone to say, oh, I thought about, I thought about Cyrus doing this today and I wanted to share that with you or what are you doing today? And oh, that's amazing that you've done this. Your dad would be so proud. Like that kind of thing. I wish mm. it was more of a dialogue. And I think another thing that's really difficult too is not just, you know, how friends try and support you afterwards. And obviously 
when my friends previously, when they had parents who died, I, you know, I was probably saying these ridiculous cliche things as well that I hate when people say that to me. But another thing is um, there was no one that I could talk to about what it's like, you know, watching a parent deteriorate so terribly from mm-hmm. cancer and what it's like, you know, actually being in the room and watching a parent die or what it's like being at your parents' funeral that you've had to, you know, like help plan and suddenly you know, be surrounded by everyone else crying on your shoulder and you're just there. And I felt totally isolated in those kind of times as well. So, yeah, I think that's really difficult. So not just, you know, like isolation in the aftermath, but also isolation in the run-up. Because as much as you can explain to your friend, like, oh, you know, I went... And I was very open with my my best friends and my boyfriend every day. Like, oh, you know, I was in the hospital today and dad had this test and the doctor said this. But they can't grasp that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, you know, they haven't seen a parent or someone that they're really close to lying in bed being totally helpless and looking at you through, like, you know, teary eyes. <laughs> That's really difficult for other people to understand. So, yeah, I really, I actually did really struggle. And I think, you know, I think you've really touched on something that's so important. Um, I think, you know, when my dad was sick, I wasn't as young as you. I was a couple of years older than you. And it was like I saw a whole other side of the universe when he was ill that I had never, my brain had never needed to go there before. You know, I had never had to consider cancer or death or dying or regret or all those things that come with and so the end of someone's life and also responsibility like you're saying so the responsibility of sitting at a bedside the responsibility of planning mm-hmm. a funeral like it it changes you on a cellular level i actually think i mean you can't you can't go from not having experienced those things to having experienced them and be the same person definitely like i think i always thought oh you know i'll just have a sort of epiphany or like some sort of feeling will take over me and I'll like an instinct and I'll know exactly what I need to do and exactly how to feel and that's just not the case like Mm. you're just completely learning as you go along and um, I think another a massive added kind of obstacle for like my situation was that when we found out that dad had cancer he was working in Atlanta at the time Mm -hmm. so we flew out so my mum myself and my brother and dad was there in Atlanta um in hospital for about um a month or so so we were basically living in this hotel room myself my mum my brother going into the hospital every day staying all day in the hospital going back to the hotel room at night so we were completely in our own little isolated bubble um obviously you know I could message people but then there was also the time difference and it was just yeah. so surreal being like what is happening to our family and why are we in this hotel room yeah. in Atlanta and you and know then, like a place you couldn't have possibly predicted you would ever be exactly exactly and then you, then eventually we did manage to get that uh air ambulance back to Los Angeles so you know like I know LA very well I was born there but it's still that's not where my friends are it's not where my boyfriend is so even though I knew the city and I have family there which was great there was still a whole half of my life that was missing and I didn't have that immediate um comfort from um so yeah it was hard to kind of yeah I guess we just got so absorbed in it and I guess I'm lucky in the sense that I didn't have to struggle with oh I need to go into work today but Mm. I wish I could be at the hospital with dad like my life was basically every day in the hospital with dad so I became completely engrossed in it um until I went home because the doctor said okay at this point he's kind of stable he will probably give him six months to live so at that point I thought okay I need to fly home because we left in such a hurry yeah so I thought I need to fly home kind of you know fill in the English family, um, check in with my part-time job, which he were so lovely and supportive and kept me on during the whole time, check in with my PhD supervisor, make sure I'm on track with that. 
And so my plan was to be home for maybe like three weeks or so. But then that time was cut very short because, you know, perhaps the doctor was wrong. But mm. dad ended up, you know, dying very shortly after I flew back home. So I had to fly back again. Mm. Um, so that was really, really, really difficult. And just trying, even when I was home and during that time when dad was still alive, trying to really tell me, explain to my friends about all of these different things and just things that, you know, like my dad now has tubes coming out of his body all over the mm. place and we have to drain his lung every day. And mm. that's just so, like... <laughs> alien people who haven't experienced it isn't that so true like suddenly these body fluids that you're dealing with and helping people get dressed and helping people eat and you know it's it's a great honor to be able to be someone that can sit by the person you love and help them like that but it's also very you know it's a huge amount of responsibility and very hard to relate to other people when you're talking about it. Um, you said something that I thought was so great earlier about asking questions. Mm. I think you could, re- that's something that would really help people who are, you know, maybe not necessarily even the people who are grieving. Although I think it would help me even now, like with other friends who might be going through something, but the curiosity, I think we're kind of taught in society to listen, you know, just listen. Yeah. Just listen. Just be there and listen. But if you think about that in practice, it's kind of a weird conversation to have with someone <laughs> where you're just sitting there. Exactly. And they're, they're talking and you're just sitting there quietly listening. I think <clears throat> being curious about it and not, you know, and asking more questions about, so where, you know, has he, how is he feeling today? Um, did they move yeah. him to a different room? How did, you know, those kinds of things would be hugely beneficial and make a person feel so loved. Definitely, definitely. And I think also like, for me when I really wanted people to ask me questions half of it I guess was an insecurity because I feared that I was boring people with just going on and on about you know like what I needed to get out but I also wanted people to ask me questions because I felt like I had so much kind of trauma built up inside me and I needed a way to get it out Hmm. so I needed someone to ask me a question so that that even like you know just kind of a general question about dad that I could then answer their general question but just kind of word vomit everything else that I was feeling inside and people just are so unaware I guess because we're taught well not taught but it's just death is such a kind of taboo like we're we're told not to really talk about it and everyone feels deeply uncomfortable whenever it's kind of mentioned and you know like a thing for me was when I came back to London after dad had died so I came back um in March and um, some people have been like, oh, where have you been? Haven't seen you for ages. Have you, have you been on holiday? Mm. And it seems like that. And you have to be like, oh, no, actually, uh, my dad died. And then it makes everyone very uncomfortable because then they feel bad, I feel yeah. bad. And then everyone just goes silent. And I'd rather they go, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. How did he die or how are yeah, you? Yeah, rather yeah. than just silence, I think. Yeah. But um, I'm quite a chatty I ask a lot of questions anyway so I think I really struggled also because I was kind of expecting people (laughs) to be asking me the same amount of questions that I potentially would be asking someone else where I had the answers in my head that I wanted to to ask but I think now a really massive thing for me is that um, you know everyone else's lives go on and when I tell my friends how I'm feeling they're incredibly supportive but I think I probably speak for a lot of grieving people when I say I wish sometimes friends would just say, how are you doing today? I know it's nearly been two years, but how are you doing? Because I feel like sometimes now when I'm really sad, 
I feel kind of embarrassed about it in the sense that I think people around me are going to think, oh, but it's been two years, you know, are you, are you mm. not over it yet? Are you not better yet? <laughs> you stopped crying. And it's just things like, well, I might not, I might not have cried in front of you this past month, but I'm definitely crying at home. So yeah. I would like for people to carry on saying, how are you doing? And like, we haven't forgotten. And isn't that like the sort of the secret lives of people who are bereaved? It's this like, yeah. You know, you're. It's like it's almost like shameful. Like you do it in places where you're not. You're not surrounded by friends, and you're not surrounded by. Oftentimes, it's on a, a train, or it's in a grocery store, or it's in your room. It's never, you know, it's not an open thing because, like you just like you said, there's like a societal pressure that well, it's time now. Um, yeah. It's and you know you said something you wrote something recently on Twitter um, that I saw about um, how life goes on for everyone, mm-hmm. uh, and you know how <laughs> that I think is. Um, I remember thinking when my mother died, I genuinely thought I was on a different planet. I couldn't figure. Yes. Out, I was like, did she die or did I die? Because the world was so foreign to me. I remember walking yeah. down the street at Christmas time and everyone was shopping, and she had died in August, and this was Christmas, and I was like, I genuinely don't know if I'm on the same earth that I was on before this happened. Yeah. Um, and, and yet, I definitely felt the same. <laughs> the world is still going. Um, you know, what was it like because you had dedicated your life to being with him at the end and to just kind of you guys all getting together and, and doing what you could, was life just completely like foreign and strange to you when you, when you went back to quote unquote normal life? Totally, yeah. So I remember when we first got the um, diagnosis. So basically what happened, Dad, was um, I think, well, we thought, you know, healthy. He'd gone for a doctor's check. I think he was feeling a bit fluey and then, you know, comes out with suddenly stage four cancer Mm. and a very limited time to live. And so I was actually at my aunt and uncle's house in Malvern. My mum rang me to tell me. I remember getting on the train back to Euston in London and it was a packed train because it was around Christmas time. Everyone was so loud and jolly. And I remember just looking at everyone like, mm. are, are you real? Yeah. <laughs> what is going on? I just couldn't understand it. And I was like, I need to get off this train. This is ridiculous. And then, you know, like flash forward, then I'm in Atlanta, which is that just felt like I was in a ridiculous bubble because, you know, it's a city I didn't know. And that was just bizarre. And then back to Los Angeles, where which I'm very familiar with the city, but suddenly it felt very alien and everyone felt very strange. And there were a few times where dad was out of hospital. So we had to go to supermarkets to, um, you know, get his special mm. food. And even then I was like, I don't understand how to food shop anymore because I now I'm doing it with the purpose of finding something that a cancer patient on a renal diet can also eat. eat. Yeah. And that was just ridiculous. And then when I finally came back to London, you know, it was almost, the, it's the societal expectation that you just carry on. So, you know, I just, I suddenly came straight back into work. And obviously, again, my colleagues, I cannot fault them. They were all so supportive, but it's like the pressure I put on myself, you know, sit at your desk every day, all day long, do not cry, <laughs> just get on with it. And then you remember like, oh, but my dad died less than two months ago. That is so bizarre that I'm expected <laughs> to be sat here yeah. and be okay and you know like I'm doing my PhD and my supervisors were saying to me you know you should defer or pause and don't put pressure on yourself but for me I was like that's the one thing that I can really get kind of stuck into so I need that to keep going otherwise what am I going to do just kind of sit around and feel like an alien in my own kind of city so I think it was definitely a mix of feeling like I, I also really need to get on with life as a way to keep sane but at the same time just feeling so 
overwhelmed and stressed and ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Anxious by the fact everybody else's lives had gone on. And I remember... Um, you know, quite a, I talk about it in the book about how to really, um, you know, like negotiate friendships and stuff in this time. Um, and one thing, you know, my friends, you know, were like young 20s, so we wanted to go out all the time or go to bars. And I'd try and go because I didn't want to be the friend that, you know, never turns up. Yeah. Um, but I remember just feeling like an insect that's kind of trapped at the bottom of a bucket. Mm. And the big kind of light at the top of the bucket is like the, the happiness and where all my friends are. And I can't get to that point. Like I want to be laughing and joking about really silly things and being so carefree but I I just can't I cannot get there because I've had such a traumatic experience not just emotionally because of dad dying but everything I witnessed and suddenly you know also becoming a carer for a parent and watching them completely deteriorate it just took me to a completely different world. I think you're going to help a lot of people in general but certainly in that age group by that just what you just said right there. Uh, because I do really think that's true because um, the going out aspect of life like mm, is such a big mm-hmm. part of your you know it's like part of it's just part of everyone's experience about you know growing up and um, being you know free and kind of not having responsibilities and shackles I suppose at that age and the idea that someone is not fun or is not you know it's a really it's a you know you really want to be fun and you want to have fun more you know even if you're grieving you still want to have fun but you can't and you're trying to make you know it's such a struggle and I think that you know you will help a lot of people who maybe have been sitting in a bar sitting in a club or sitting somewhere thinking no matter what I do here they don't know what I've seen or what I felt or what I've been through and I can't change that before we go, I just wanted to ask you about the experience of writing the book, yeah. um, how that has felt for you and how it feels now that it, you know, now that you've finished it. Um, so it started off by, um, for example, I had like the Google Docs app on my phone. And if I felt like I was in public and just really overwhelmed with what I was feeling, I'd write it down on my Google Docs app that I could access anywhere. And then as time went on, 
um, I was still searching and searching for resources that I could relate to and just absolutely couldn't. So then I just had an idea like, oh, well, you know what? I'm just going to write the book that I wish I'd ha- I was handed. So once I sat down and started writing it, it was extremely quick. And I poured my emotions out. Um, I actually started by kind of thinking about my emotions and themes. And so I kind of began by almost writing my table of contents and then filling it in a bit like painting by numbers. But it was everything was just coming out of my mind. And, you know, it's all like my own lived experience. So I was able to write it as quickly as I could basically type. Um, So that was really, really positive experience, actually. And I felt almost a lot lighter afterwards because a lot of things that I had wanted to tell people that I felt like I couldn't, I had just written in the book. Um, So the first draft, I think I wrote in like 17 days. It was very, very swift. And then, then I found that once I'd written it, I couldn't touch it. I couldn't almost couldn't look at it. Like I was really proud. I'd, I'd kept it as a secret. Like I hadn't really told anyone. My family didn't know. Um, only it was only my boyfriend that knew because he saw me writing it. Mm. And so I felt really proud of what I had done, but it was still my secret. Um, and then I left it for about six months. And then I thought, right, I need to get a push on this. I want to get it out. I want to get it out there. And that's when I started to go back and um, edit it. But I didn't want to edit the emotions because it's based on you know what I felt in the during the first year so it's like I want to keep all of that really true even if I might not feel that now that's how I felt then so editing more just you know like sentence structure and things like that but then I found that process actually really difficult because it was putting my mind back into those places that I had perhaps you know like managed to adapt my life around and things so that was the editing process was actually really difficult in an emotional kind of way and then um I did, you know, think about going down normal publishing routes, but I also, I felt like there's such an urgency. I needed to get it out there because I needed people who needed it to have it immediately. And also my fear was that if I went down um, the publishing route, people might, you know, I guess my fear is probably sounds really bad, but I didn't want to have an editor or a publisher that hadn't experienced a close death yeah. tell me that what I had written was like, you know, yeah. choose to change the sentence or this bit is a bit far-fetched. Cause it's like, well, no, that's actually what happened. Yeah. So I was like, do you know what? I'm going to self-publish it. Then it's mine. It's, you know, it's my experience. Dad would be so proud. And I actually, um, I brought it out on his birthday as Aww. well, which is a nice, a nice little touch. Um, and now, yeah, I'm just really proud of it. I kind of stare at the copies of it and I'm like, oh, yeah, wow, I wrote that. Yeah, well, you <laughs> so, should be no. so proud of it. And I think you should be so proud of the fact that you were so aware enough to remember to keep those memories in as they were, like the experience as it was in the first year, because like it does change, you know, over yeah. the years. And so to to give someone that gift of like the year, the real, that those real, very real feelings is pretty, you know, and I hope that when you read it back and when you look at it now that you have compassion for that person that experienced such a sad and difficult thing. Definitely. I almost think of it as a bit of a um, identity crisis almost yeah. because I just feel so sorry for that person even mm. though I know that is like myself and I, I don't I don't mean to have almost a pity party but I'm like god I cannot two like three years ago I would never have imagined that this happened to my life mm. and you know even now like I look in the mirror sometimes and I just think god you've changed so much not in 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 the maturity level because you've witnessed so much but also there's just 
I guess, not wanting to sound really overly dramatic, but the classic kind of, you know, there's pain behind my eyes now. (laughs) I've seen so much and experienced so much. But I think a positive of going back through the book and editing it, and when I when I just read it now is that even though I absolutely hated the cliche, you know, like time heals and it doesn't, but to an extent it does because some things I'm like, Oh, I'm not as angry about that anymore. Or I've learned to adapt my life around this one thing anymore or now. And I don't, you know, I don't have flashbacks or night terrors as much anymore. So I think I can definitely see my progress, which is, which is a positive thing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I think, you know, to specifically have a resource there and have someone talking about what it's like to go through it at such a young age. Um, I'm so sorry you lost your dad. Um, he certainly sounds like an incredible person. And thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. It's been really lovely to talk to you. You too. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.